with your host, Craig Allen. If you're tired of seeing the media cater to, from the far right or the far left, if you're sick of talking points from the extremes, if you would rather hear about ways America could get along, then you're listening to your new favorite guide from the political void, also known as the middle of America politics. Let's join our host for an entertaining look at politics. Here's Craig Allen. Happy Thanksgiving, America. Are you excited about Turkey Day coming in just a couple of days? Are you ready for some football, some time with your family, some parades, music, giving thanks to God for the great harvest, for the food, the fun, and the freedom that we have as Americans across this great land? Well, we are right here at this program, and we are blessed that you are listening to our little show during this wonderful holiday season. Thank you, listeners, and to those who have shared our program. We are growing, and we appreciate that. We want to spread a better message across this country that we can all get along as we don't have to sit around and listen to the extremes and believe that this is the only way to live, that we can love each other, that we can be thankful, and that is what this show is all about. And that gets me to our show today. This is the Thanksgiving show today. So stay here as we discuss a truly great American hero and the first Thanksgiving hero in the American tradition, in fact. This Native American helped spread peace in our land, and he knew how to do it. In fact, he was so successful, he kept it going for more than 50 years. We will profile his life today. And a caucus we will go. Yes, we will talk about the Iowa caucuses and just how caucuses work in general in our policy for the normal guy portion of our program. We will point out the importance of this great process. And during the holiday season, we always want to watch football, right? Well, in our Inspire and Admire segment, we feature a great Dallas Cowboy. Touchdown! And one who will indeed be playing this Thanksgiving day. In what way did he inspire me and my kids this week? And certainly our partisan divide is bad. It is bad for friendships, for family, for all of us. And during the holidays, it's really bad. Yes. But it is also dangerous. In a segment we call, Is It Crazy Fear or Is Our Fear Crazy? We will point out how bad is our partisanship getting in this country? And perhaps how far have we gone? Is it too far? Is it possibly dangerous as a part of our political process? And we dedicate this program to our 35th president of the United States. Well, who was that? Well, he helped destroy the mafia in this country, which had risen to a supremely dangerous power level at the point of his presidency, and he held off nuclear war. So why wouldn't we dedicate this show to him? Who was this guy? Find out in a new segment we call, How Did We Get Here? We have two other new segments this week as well. First, I have Pride in the French. Yes. Well, truth be told, I have some French ancestry in the Huguenots, but in this case, it's the modern French I'm proud of, standing up against anti-Semitism in a march. And I am going to feature them in a new segment called Stand on Your Will or Relent and Silently Kill. And we will profile what the French did this week. And let's talk turkey, or perhaps turkeys, that is. And birds of a feather stick together, our other new segment, we will point out that there is real politics 
in this foul tradition that goes back to, well, uh, Truman? Uh, well, no, but uh, that is what we're going to get into in Lefty Lucy, Righty Tidy, a Texan caught in the middle. I am that Texan, Craig Allen, your fine feathered friend on this blessed Thanksgiving week. Thank you again for joining us. And before we get to all that frivolity, the mirth, the merriment that goes in with the holidays. We have one dire story on this holiday show that I thought we ought to cover first. This story is about our fear this holiday season. Certainly, there is a sense of fear in where our country is headed, but there is more fear from some. We are worried about our radical partisans. We are going too far over the edge, folks. Partisanship is a good thing in politics. It drives politics, frankly. My dad was a partisan, but he was not a nut. He could get along with just about anybody. And that is what is wrong with 21st century America. Yes. Our partisanship has gone too far. My dad was World War II generation. And frankly, he could get along with anybody. Are all right-wing conservative Republicans really white supremacists or Nazis? No. Of course not. We attack each other under the guise of, are you saying red stuff or blue stuff? We are not even arguing over real problems. <gasps> Are left-wing liberal Democrats really communists and pedophiles? No! Heck no! It is preposterous and completely off the chain to say so. In fact, not only have we gone too far, we have gone way, way, way too far. And this is when the stuff we are saying becomes stupid. And in this week's show, we'll call it out. We will rehash a segment we call, Is It Crazy Fear or Is Our Fear Crazy? and discuss partisanship going too far. Is it crazy to fear these partisans or is our fear crazy? And in this Thanksgiving, we are gonna get the really bad news out of the way first. We are very divided and we know it. Frankly, this is why I started this show, but let's see what we can do about it. Let's see if this is just fear that is crazy, not that bad, or if we should have crazy fear of these radical partisans. <gasps> Let's also see what we can do about trying to fix our radical partisanship. Yes! We don't need it in this country. We are weaker with it. Remember this principle. If I don't teach you anything else on this show, united we stand, divided we fall. If I don't teach you anything else on this show, remember that principle because it applied to the Roman Empire, it applied to the Spanish, it applied to the French, it applied to the Byzantine Empire, and so on and so forth. Sorry. Communication is key, and this is pointed out by studies that have been done. A PhD candidate, Luisa Santos, from the Polarization and Social Change Lab at Stanford University, found that having conversations across the aisle is a big part of finding commonality and not on social media. No. Folks, let me just say it right now. That is not a conversation. When you quote unquote talk to people on social media, that is not a conversation. You're writing back and forth. It's no different than writing a letter in the old days, except you're getting it a lot faster and you're just reading the words faster. That's it. You're writing to each other. You betcha. It's not a conversation. You're not seeing their faces. You're not reading their body language. You're not able to see things. Now, looking at somebody talking to you by video, that's a whole different thing. Rob Willer, who runs the lab, says that polarization and partisan divide essentially paralyzes the government <coughs> and keeps us from being able to handle our problems as they arise. Does this sound like something China and Russia would love? 
for us to have these problems, for us not to be able to handle our ways that we can agree and solve our problems? What about things like paid family leave, reasonable restrictions on abortion, regulations on food and medicine to increase safety in this country? Did you know as an example that our life expectancy went down during the first years of the Obama presidency? Were the Republicans and Democrats fighting then? Of course. And were we extremely polarized? Of course. This is an issue we could have attacked, but we didn't. And do you know why we didn't? Because political beliefs compromised our country's strength. It compromised our ability to go after something essential. That is our livelihoods. Are we stupid? Yes. And do we need to start changing our thoughts processes here in this country? Yes. We need to think about how we can get along more than we can think about how we can not get along. That is the difference. Certainly we have political beliefs. Certainly we can have ways that we don't compromise or do compromise, but we need to think more about ways we can compromise than we can think about ways that we don't. What they found in the lab at Stanford was that when people actually spoke face-to-face and had real conversations, not online, they got along better. They worked out their differences. Hiding behind a computer and disparaging people is no way to be a human. Why would we ever want to do this? According to PPS, there's also a phenomenon called the big sort, where Democrats or Republicans are increasingly likely to live in different parts of the country, to work in different occupations, and so you're less likely to encounter somebody who is a friend of yours from high school or a friend of yours from your workplace or an acquaintance in your neighborhood who has a different attitude, a different party affiliation, or identifies in some way different from you culturally. This is not good for our society. No. Although our culture has had some groups of people who have grouped themselves together from the very beginning, culture has always brought us together through church, shopping, schools, work, etc. That is until the advent of the internet and then the pandemic and other things. Now we are way too divided. Oh. Are we going to go like the rest of the world? In parts of the world where there's constant political unrest and violence, countries like Zimbabwe, Venezuela, Russia, and Turkey have had unrest due to their political differences, and it's gotten out of hand. Are we really stupid enough to let something like that happen here? The number one thing we must do is not support political violence against another group, period. Breaking into the Capitol, hurting or killing people in the process of pushing politics? Stupid. Yes. Marching against the police and killing or hurting people and burning down cities in the advent of politics? Stupid. Yes. Democrats perceive Republicans supporting political violence at much higher levels than they really are here. It goes the other way, too. If you look at polling, this is simply not true. <gasps> Either way, if you think that there are extreme nuts in the majority of the Republican or Democratic Party, you yourself are quickly becoming the nut. You must get out and talk with people who do not agree with you. Yes. You are otherwise becoming misled, misinformed, and frankly, brainwashed. By who? Who's doing this? Just like I said in my first program, social media and the cable news networks are dangerous in this country. That is, unless you're smart enough to filter them or you filter them by reading something else to make sure that you are fact-checking them. Yes! You cannot always believe what you see or what they say. 
You can believe experts, at least sometimes. You need to trace the money and the education behind them. You can believe a representative of Congress, at least sometimes, unless they happen to be a nut. You can believe actual videos shot from the scene, but don't believe the talking heads who are characterizing something about the video or characterizing something they saw and they don't give you video or not necessarily giving you the factual witness from the scene testimony. You need to believe what you see and hear with a filter. Filter it and think before you believe it. Yes! Rob Willer from Stanford says he thinks, quote, social media platforms, but also cable news networks have a lot of potential influence, a lot of power. But the problem, not a lot of motivation to take action on this problem. In fact, they may have the reverse. They may be benefiting from polarization and from increasing it. In other words, the social media companies and the cable news network companies are making money off of you becoming a nut. Do not become a nut and give them money. Instead, think and don't believe what you see or what they say. Yes. But some ways you can make it better. And I can tell you how you can do this. Number one, filter, like I was telling you. Yes. Open up. Have a political conversation with your friends or your family who you don't necessarily agree with. And not online or even by phone, but face to face. We're on video calls. You can help change America for the better by doing this. You can help change America for the better by doing this more than you can do anything else. When we come together versus being torn apart, we will be a better place. Much like the place I grew up in, where frankly, the World War II generation had their differences, but came together during the war and kept it going afterwards. Oh! Why? It was a maturity thing. Why do we want to live in a banana republic? I'm not going to define banana republic for you. Go look it up if you don't know what it is. The reason why I'm saying this, we don't want to live like this. And I don't want you to live like this. And I don't want us to settle for something like this. We want to stop it before it happens. And I will give you an example of what it's like to live in a banana republic. I am frightened when I see Trump not admitting that he lost the election or Democrats bringing him to trial. Both of those are examples of what crazy people do in banana republics. We have never done this to a president in our history before. No. And we are continually trying to impeach presidents now, whether it be Biden or Trump or any other. This was supposed to only be used for very serious high crimes by a president, not what was thought to be said on a telephone call or what someone's son did or blah, 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 blah. I am ashamed of this entire generation of people for using this device in a way it's not supposed to be used. (gasps) Look at the World War II generation, for example. There is a serious lack of maturity in this generation compared to that one. Maturity says we can't always get what we want, and sometimes we lose, but we accept that and we go on. Why in the world would we ever ransack our own beloved capital? Are we stupid? That's not what we do in a democracy like this. When... Power has been transferred back and forth peacefully for decades. Why would we lose so much control that we are now trying to punish our political rivals by bringing them to trial? We never did this for 200 years. It's like playing in the sandbox and someone takes your toy, so you throw sand in their face. Does anyone really win? The answer, of course, is no. (sighs) So... 
Our partisan divide is healthy to a certain point, but we've reached that point and gone way past it. We would not have solved some of our greatest problems without partisanship, such as Reaganomics pulling us out of the financial misery of the 70s or the Kennedy answer to peace or war with the Soviet Union. Yes! Or the New Deal pulling us out of the Great Depression or Teddy Roosevelt and his crusade to save America's natural areas and its wildlife. So we know great things can be done through partisanship when we have ideas that are considered partisan. But we can also do great things when we come together. This is the main reason why I see America needing new blood in its main leadership positions. We do not need old partisan hacks taking extreme sides. One of my favorites, who certainly isn't afraid to express his beliefs, who will also work across the aisle, is another John Kennedy, the Republican senator from Louisiana. He certainly made me laugh many times. He's put forth legislation to protect our stock market, to extend flood insurance, to preserve disaster relief programs. He graduated magna cum laude in political science, philosophy, and economics from Vanderbilt. He has a law degree from the University of Virginia, so he's got plenty of accolades. He has a great attitude when he's expressing himself. He's put forth great reasons for what he believes rather than just what he believes. Think about your favorite politician. Which do they do? Just tell you what they think or they put forth great reasons behind what they think? Overall, with war in the Middle East, terrorism, and our immigration situation out of control, we must figure out a way to come together. If we don't, we will go the way of every other great superpower in the past, including Rome, Spain, and the UK, all which slowly fell apart from within. But we can do something about it. I read an interesting article in Salon by Richard Eckersley, an Australian who was looking at us from the outside. He's a social researcher looking at our postmodern world. He says our divide is not between Republican and Democrat, a religious divide, or even a racial divide. The divide is between science and politics. I believe some of his conclusions are indeed correct. He says people are more isolated and that they're not dealing with modern society well. Duh. But he does give a great example of what he means. Take as an example, this is his quote, materialism and individualism two defining qualities of modern Western culture. The research literature suggests that when taken together and too far, they reduce social integration, self-worth, moral clarity. There is a shift from intrinsic to extrinsic values and goals, from doing things for their own sake to doing things in the hope or expectation of other rewards, such as status, money, and recognition. The result is an increasing focus on our own lives and an unrelenting need to make the most of life. Frustration, disappointment, failure become more likely. Loneliness, anger, depression, and anxiety are at greater risk. He criticizes equally both Obama and the left, as well as Trump and the right in this article. You betcha. But he says that Democrats are so busy trying to punish Trump, they missed the point on why he won in the first place. He points out that more people voted in the 2020 election than ever before. These are both great things for America, if we come to terms with what they mean. In any case, Perhaps the voter turnout shows good signs of things coming in the future. Voting, not rioting in the streets, burning down our cities, attacking the Capitol is a far better option. When we actually sit together and talk face to face, good things will come. We also should not be sending money to support politicians that want to break apart society. It does not help. We may be secretly helping our enemies when we do so, like China and Russia. I am very pro-American, but I'm certainly not pro any certain political party. I am pro Texan too. I am proud of my state, I'm proud of my country. I want us all to achieve success. 
We can do this together if we stop taking stuff too far. If you disagree with someone, try not calling them a name like racist or immediately trying to cancel them or trying to ruin them in some sort of way or boycotting them or whatever. Instead, offer to get a coffee and talk. It worked for Saturday Night Live once. I bet it could work for us too. Next, we talk about a hero of our Thanksgiving tradition, a Native American who without him, I personally would not be here. And later stick around as we talk about a president who died 60 years ago. We will look into his death and see why there is such a mystery there. Thank you for joining us and let us know what you think about the program. We'll be back in a moment. Thank you again for staying with us on our special Thanksgiving program today. We are talking about America, why we need to unite, and one of the first great uniters in our country's history was a uniter before we were a country, a Native American leader who without him, I literally probably would not even be here. In our regular Greatest American Heroes feature, we will talk about Massasoit. Although, believe it or not, this was not even his real name. His real name was Usamekin, which translates to yellow feather. Now, forgive me, I'm going to say a lot of Native American names today. Please forgive me if I don't say them right. I'm doing my best. I am not the best at pronouncing names outside of the English language. In fact, I'm not even the best at pronouncing names in the English language, but we'll do our best. But Massasoit was really his title mm. as the leader. He was a Wampagnoid Indian chief. The English misunderstood his name from his title and it just stuck. And Wampagnoids, which means the people of the first light, they saw the sun first. They were on the East Coast and they were a confederacy of tribes 
the Pokanaket, and other small tribes. They were a part of the Northeast Indian culture, which is a web of cultures that comprises a group of Indians that lived in the temperate forests in the Northeast United States, made up of meadows, wetlands, waterways, coastal areas, kind of a web of water and land. And he ruled over parts of what is now Rhode Island, where he was born, and Southeast Massachusetts. His actual birth date, we don't know, but we think he was born around 1590, but we are not exactly sure. He was first afraid of and unsure of all English and European boats that were coming through to the new land because some had been involved in trying to kidnap Native Americans to make them slaves. These were European traders who did not plan to settle in America. These were not people coming here for a new life, but merely pillaging the new land for its spoils. Massasoit was wise enough not to judge the pilgrims that way when the Mayflower arrived. Instead of killing them or invoking the spirits against them, he judged them not by the color of their skin, but by their actions and their deeds. He saw that they had women and children with them, and that was different, and that they were washing their clothes. They were building settlements that were more long-term rather than short-term. These were signs of civilization to him. Massasoit also listened to reason from his friend Squanto about the pilgrims. Squanto had been taken to Europe and had lived amongst Europeans for a while. He knew they could be a valuable asset as an ally to Massasoit. Massasoit is not mentioned by name prior to 1621 in any settler diaries, although he and his brother Quaraquina are undoubtedly the two kings attended with a guard of 50 armed men that met Captain Thomas Dermer at Pocanocket in May 1619 when he was returning Squanto to his homeland. He first sent Samoset to meet with the pilgrims in the Plymouth colony to determine if they were indeed peaceful, as Squanto had advised him. But, as he himself had surmised, he had been watching them, and he had kind of begun to think that way. Once he realized that they were indeed a peaceful people, he wanted then to meet with them. So on a very important day, March the 22nd, 1621, he went to visit with the pilgrims at Plymouth, at the invitation of Squanto and Samoset, who had already been there to meet with the pilgrims. Squanto and Samoset introduced Massasoit to the English. But first, when they showed up, they showed up with 60 armed men and overlooked the colony. There were the Native Americans up on a hill overlooking them. Edward Winslow, who is my eighth great uncle, sent him some gifts and Massasoit was told that the pilgrims only desired peace and trading. Massasoit was told that the great King James of England saluted him with peace, and he was now to be accepted as an ally of the king. Massasoit liked what he heard. He thought they could be powerful allies against his other enemies in the region. Massasoit had a lot of enemies, but the main enemy was the Narangassets. The pilgrims wanted a peace treaty, and so he negotiated a treaty with them. At the treaty negotiation, he met at the river with some of my relatives, Captain Miles Standish, my grandfather, and Elder William Brewster. They saluted one another, and he was taken to William Bradford's house for the negotiations with Governor John Carver. He was the Plymouth governor at the time. Massasoit was given some liquor, 
fresh meat, and biscuits. Massasoit and the Pilgrims agreed to a treaty that day, especially with the help of Carver, which provided that none of Massasoit's men would harm any Pilgrim. And if they did, the offender would be sent back to the Pilgrims for punishment. And if anyone did unjust war against Massasoit, the Pilgrims would be an ally to fight with him. And they would use their cannons, their knives, their swords, etc., to help him. They also agreed that when meeting for trade, that neither of them would bring their weapons, either bows or guns. And this is the way that Edward Winslow, my relative, described Massasoit. He said he is a very lusty man, in his best years, an able body, grave of countenance and spare of speech. In his attire, little or nothing differing from the rest of his followers, only in great chain of white bones about his neck. And at it behind his neck hangs a little bag of tobacco, which he drank and gave us to drink. His face was painted with a sad red like Murray and oiled both head and face. He had in his bosom hanging in a string a great long knife. He marveled much at our trumpet. Massasoit then sent Squanto back to help the pilgrims learn to survive, cultivate crops, fish and hunt. He interpreted for them in trade relations with other tribes. Massasoit sent his greatest warrior and his family, Habamak, to watch over Squanto. This shows you how much Massasoit began to trust the pilgrims at this point that he would send his greatest warrior to live with them. My grandfather, Captain Miles Standish, became good friends with Habamak and his family, strengthening their bonds. The real story of our celebrated tradition of the first Thanksgiving comes from Mort's relation. The colonists had brought in a good harvest and hunting had gone well, so they celebrated with recreation, quote unquote, by firing off their muskets. And then, quote, many of the Indians coming among us and among the rest, their greatest king, Massasoit, with some 90 men, whom for three days we entertained and feast. Now Bradford and Winslow both wrote how the Native Americans regularly came to the colony uninvited for a variety of reasons, but one of them was trade. It is possible that Massasoit and his men were on some kind of mission or were out hunting when they heard the musket shots and in accordance with the treaty came to see if the colonists needed help. When they saw the colonists, they were actually low on food to feed everyone. They left and returned with five deer. But there is nothing to suggest they were invited to eat with the pilgrims. While, based on earlier reports of Native American visits, this is the conclusion we make. This is not to say that there was no genuine affection between the two groups, nor that they did not celebrate the harvest together. As both Bradford and Winslow note that relations between the colonists and Massasoit's people had moved in a very friendly direction. They did, for certain, have respect for each other by this point. After signing of the treaty, the friendships grew with William Bradford, Edward Winslow, Stephen Hopkins, John Carver, and Miles Standish. But the friendship really strengthened in 1623 when Massasoit fell gravely ill. In fact, so ill that when Edward Winslow went through a snowstorm with medicines to try and save his life at the Indian's request, he thought he was already dead. He found Massasoit in his house full of many visitors, but Massasoit wasn't dead. He was blind though. He could still understand what Winslow was saying. When they told him that the English had come to visit him, he asked, Keen Winslow? Which means, are you Winslow? Then he said, Mata Neen 
Wankinet Namen Winslow, which means, Oh, Winslow, I shall never see you again. Winslow gave him a bit of medicine, scraped out the inside of his mouth, which was said to be too swollen to eat or drink anything. He gave Massasoit some water and more medicine. In about a half hour, Massasoit had regained his eyesight and was getting better. Winslow made a chicken broth for Massasoit, and within a few days, Massasoit had his appetite fully back, and he eventually fully recovered. Edward Winslow had nursed him back to health. Afterward, Massasoit would say nothing but great things about the English. He even said, quote, they are my friends and love me. Whilst I live, I will never forget this kindness they have showed me. Massasoit is described in 1623 as, quote, a proper man is ever seen in this country and very courageous. In return for this aid, Massasoit warned the colony that a group of influential Massachusetts Indians were set to destroy both the Wegesets and the Plymouth colonies. The warning came just in time. Otherwise, that's where I come in. I might not exist, as I had family on the Mayflower and family that had come over just after the initial Mayflower boats, and all were there. And there are some historians who think that without this warning, the colony would have been destroyed. There's other historians who think that it was just a rumor, but I am glad that Massasoit stuck by his treaty. Yes! I wish more leaders kept their word as he did. I wish more leaders were more insightful as he was. The peace treaty they signed would last almost 50 years. Later, some slight tensions came up over land, but Massasoit eased it all down by selling attractive land in 1649, and he eased the tension by selling it to none other than Miles Standish. This sale took place on Sasham Rock in Massachusetts near the Sacatucket River. Massasoit lived a very long life and remained a close friend and ally of the Plymouth Colony until his death around 1661. His son took over as chief then. The peace held for a few years after his death, but misgivings and mistrust would set in because of a lack of the same foresight and maturity on both sides that were had in the original agreement. A war would break out that would enrage the entire continent for the next 200 years. If more men were like Massasoit on both sides, and had the courage and the determination and the foresight that Massasoit had, America would have been a different place and a better place over those 200 years. And now on this holiday week, we take a look at what I am sure we would not expect. We turn next to the world of sports for our inspire and admire segment of the program. The Dallas Cowboys play on Thanksgiving Day. They have been doing so for the last nearly 60 years. And in the tradition of that game, I went to a Dallas Cowboy for our Inspire Admire feature. I happened to catch Dallas Cowboy receiver Brandon Cooks speaking this week after their win over the New York Giants. Sorry, Giants fans, they wiped you out. But I am happy for the Cowboys. In any case, Brandon Cooks is a wide receiver for the Cowboys who had a big part in this win. As a big football fan, I am really happy about this part of the Thanksgiving tradition. And the Cowboys are a definite part of that too, every year playing on Thanksgiving. Well, first, let's get to why do the Cowboys play on Thanksgiving? Mm -hmm. All the teams were invited to host a game in 1966, but they only had two time slots. And no team wanted to do it at first, not even the Cowboys, no one. They all wanted to stay home and have Thanksgiving with their families, but the NFL kind of coaxed and pushed, and two teams came forward to do so, the Detroit Lions and the Dallas Cowboys. 
The Detroit Lions had been around since 1930, but hadn't had much success and wanted more exposure to fans to grow their fan base. The other was a fairly new team, the Dallas Cowboys, who were just starting to rise. With their stoic head coach, Tom Landry, this was a year that they had started to make something happen with their winning team and getting to the playoffs. They went on to have 20 straight winning seasons after agreeing to play on Thanksgiving. And it's still a record in every major pro sport. And they went on to play in five Super Bowls and in 14 conference championships. Do they owe it all to playing on Thanksgiving Day? I'm not sure, but maybe you can make a case for that. In any case, Brandon Cooks had his first breakout game for the Cowboys last week against the Giants. He has had a great career, but he's been a journeyman receiver playing for several different teams. He was drafted by the New Orleans Saints in 2014. He also played for the Patriots, the Rams, the Houston Texans before being traded to the Cowboys last year. He's had a great career overall with nearly 9,000 yards and more than 50 touchdowns, but some in the media and some fans were calling for other receivers to take his job before this week's game. He had been struggling. Cooks is 30 years old, was born in California, was a highly rated receiver coming out of high school. He played for Oregon State. He won the Bolitnikoff Award given to the nation's best college receiver before he went to the NFL. He's moved around a bit trying to find his right spot. He is a very strong Christian and I admire him for that. Coming out strong is indeed troublesome sometimes in this day and age. He has the nickname of the archer, and this is a reference back to the Bible and some scriptures that he quotes. He's married. I was watching interviews at the end of the Dallas Cowboy game when they interviewed Cooks this week. He is a very different guy to most players in responding to interview questions. He has such a positive and very determined attitude. He was strong during the entire interview. I was impressed with the way he handled reporters, not with a crass or cross or arrogant attitude, but in a poised, determined way. He said several things that I have shared with my children to help them stay determined in the pursuit of their musical careers. He said you have to, quote, trust the process when you practice and put in the work to do something. He had to trust his quarterback as well, Dak Prescott. Brandon Cooks made the point that he is always a competitor. When they asked him what he had to do to get to success that he wanted, he said he went back to the word. In other words, the Bible. He quoted Galatians 6, 9 through 10 effortlessly without any problem from the NIV version of the Bible. He said, quote, don't grow weary in doing good. For the proper time, you will reap the harvest if you don't give up. He said he had a good, hard couple of years in the last few years, but his family and his faith keep him going. He said he was going to, quote, trust the men in this building, referring to other players, and that he wanted to, quote, turn losses into wins. Now, I'm not sure if you can say anything more positive than that. I don't know how you turn a loss into a win more in the NFL, which is one of the toughest leagues to win in in sports. I was inspired and blessed to be able to hear his witness as a Christian, but to also see his positivity in an age where so many pro athletes are not good role models for our kids with their desire to fight on the field or the court or publicly back violent video games, drugs, or gangs. This man is an awesome role model for my kids as well as others across the nation. I am proud to say that I was inspired by Brandon Cooks this week, a Dallas Cowboy, and I hope he continues to use his position in society to do the same thing. It is both uniting and inspiring. 
Well, next, we will learn something on this holiday week. We will talk about some caucuses, the Iowa caucuses in particular. Why are they important and why crazy things happen there sometimes? Stay with us as we encounter something of the politically different coming up next. have a great Thanksgiving holiday time coming up. Mine, I hope, will include some family, as well as some pumpkin pie, some homemade cranberry sauce, turkey with giblet gravy, and if I get my way, Mm. I cannot cook. I will admit that up front. Yummy. So I have to use my influence. I will request Emmett Smith's sweet potato casserole. Yes. I think it is actually his mom's casserole, but he has his name on it, so that's how I go with it. For those who don't know who he is, a brief explanation. He is one of the greatest football players in history, a Dallas Cowboy, and one of the greatest players on Thanksgiving in particular, the great John Madden has pointed this out many times with this commentary. He rushed for nearly 20,000 yards and holds so many NFL records, I cannot list them all here. Yet, when he was drafted, he was said to be too small and too slow. Well, the rest is history. You betcha. And there have been many Americans who have achieved greatness even when many thought they couldn't do it. But his casserole is what is so great right now that I'm thinking about. It comes complete with a pecan crust and is absolutely delicious. So if you have a chance, look it up, find it, and make it because it's super good. Anyway, we must get on to a political tradition, not just a Thanksgiving tradition now, and talk about caucuses in our weekly segment, Poli Sci for the Normal Guy. Mm. That is where we are going. Particularly the Iowa caucus is what I'm focusing on, but we are also going to talk about caucuses in general. It's one of the many political traditions of choosing a president every four years. We have been doing this since the 1800s. This year, the date for the Iowa caucus will be January 15th, 2024, which also happens to be MLK Day. Oh. 
At least for the Republicans. Democrats have elected to do mail-in balloting for a caucus and then announce results on March the 5th. Although the process starts on MLK Day. I will be honest, this seems silly for a caucus. I will tell you why when I explain how a caucus really works and how it works versus a general primary vote. What is up for grabs ultimately are votes for delegates to the conventions. When you caucus, it is more like a neighborhood meeting. At 7 p.m. on the night of the voting, at least this is how they do it in Iowa, if you're a registered Republican, in this case in January, you would go to your Republican group in your precinct and caucus. Typically, these meetings occur in schools, churches, public libraries, or individuals' houses. The Republicans have already said they will have different places this year in some 176 spots across the state. Each precinct will divide the delegates among the candidates. Now I'm gonna tell you how a caucus normally works, but there's gonna be some differences this year amongst the Republicans and even definitely amongst the Democrats since they're doing it by mail. The Democrats did this very traditionally until this year. I will explain the traditional caucus format. So you start out by standing in a designated area. Yes, you stand, you don't vote, you stand. And you get into some form of group. You get into a preference group for each candidate. So if I'm for the Joe Bidens, I go over here in the Joe Biden area. If I'm for the uh, Dean Phillips, I go over here in the Dean Phillips area. And then voters can push for their candidate. They can walk over to the Joe Biden area and say, hey, come over here, come, come get in this Dean Phillips area. There may also be an area for uncommitted to stand. And what some can do is they can say, hey, go over there and get some uncommitteds to come join us. Yeah! <laughs> and so they can pull from that group. Each group might informally put someone in charge of grabbing a few members. So they might, might they might have sergeants that they send out and, hey, Sergeant Joe, you go over there and grab some uncommitted and bring them over here. Undecided participants might visit each preference group to ask its members about their candidate. So you might say, well, I might vote for your candidate, but what do they really stand for? And then you basically campaign right there. You're sparring and pushing and pulling people over to your side. Frankly, this type of stuff is illegal in Texas at our voting sites. You can do this 100 yards from the voting facility, but you can't do it at the voting site. You'll see all kinds of signs in this area 100 yards away, but after that, once you get inside that 100 yards, you can't do anything. No. So this is why the caucuses are very different. And this is why it's so silly to have a mail-in for a caucus. <laughs> you have to be able to pull and push and talk and go back and forth with each other. Mailing in, you can't do this. It's silly. Don't even call it a caucus. It's not a caucus at this point, Democrats. <laughs> Republicans choose their candidates by non-binding secret ballots at their caucuses. These results can change too because there is some electioneering there too. In fact, in 2012, three different candidates won on three different counts. It's kind of crazy, but Republicans changed the rules in 2016. <laughs> After some time in this traditional caucus, this time electioneering is temporarily stopped. So supporters for each candidate and the uncommitted are counted. Oh. Caucus officials decide which candidates or groups are viable. Yeehaw! Potentially including the uncommitted group. Oh. Depending on the number of delegates to be elected, the viability threshold is determined. For a candidate, including the uncommitted group, to earn any delegates from a precinct, the candidate must have the votes of at least the necessary percentage of participants required by the viability threshold. Once viability is determined, participants have an opportunity to then realign. So they can jump over on somebody else's side or 
jump over here or move into this group or move into that group. Although supporters of viable candidates at this point are locked into their groups. So if you've already voted and your guy moved on to the next step, you have to stay in your group. But if you supported someone who lost, you may now pick another group or you can just quit <laughs> and go home. You may now join together with supporters of a non-viable candidate. You may support someone who lost. So let's say Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis both lose and they're non-viable candidates. Their supporters can join together to pick one or the other and now they can become viable again. So there's all sorts of ways this can work. Or you can just choose not to vote, as I said, and go home. This realignment is a very big distinction from primaries because your second choice can sometimes help a candidate win. Because in this case, in the Republican primaries coming up in Iowa, let's say Trump gets 40% of the delegates. He's probably going to be ahead because Nikki Haley's probably going to get 15% or mm. DeSantis is probably going to get 20% and so on. Aww. But let's say that... Some of the other candidates, their supporters quickly jump out or they're in the uncommitted category or whatever, and they all suddenly start grouping up and realizing, hey, we can beat Trump if we all jump on the DeSantis bandwagon. And then all of a sudden, DeSantis winds up at 52%. Zowie! And DeSantis wins. Ooh. That's how the Iowa caucus can be very different from a primary. When all voting is closed down, a final head count is conducted. Each precinct apportions delegates to the county convention. So you don't, like in a regular primary, you get a 52 to 40% thing. Those percentages are then turned into a number of delegates. So if you have 40 delegates, let's say, because they have somewhere around that that goes to the convention. I'm out. If Trump gets 40%, he would get 40% of those delegates, which is roughly 16. And if DeSantis got 50%, he would get 20. So he would have more to go to the convention. And Iowa used to be where you would get all of the delegates if you won Iowa, but now they do it by a portion. <laughs> Most of the participants go home at this point, leaving a few to finish the business of the caucus. <sighs> Each candidate's preference group must then elect its delegates. <clears throat> the group convenes to elect local party officers, discuss party platform. The delegates are chosen by the precinct, then go to a later caucus, the county convention. Then they choose delegates there to the district convention, then to the state convention. And delegates at each level of the convention are bound to support their chosen candidate. But they are able to switch in a process very similar to what occurs at the precinct level. So if, if your candidate becomes non-viable, you can switch over and move around and all that stuff. But major shifts past the precinct level are very, very rare. And they happen very infrequently, Ooh. which is why the media always declares a candidate a winner on election night. On the very beginning of the caucus process. Relatively little attention is paid to later caucuses. There was once a lot of states that used caucuses, but that has dwindled down to just Iowa, Nevada, and Wyoming, and four U.S. territories. I frankly like caucuses and think they are purely democratic, much more democratic than voting in a little closed booth. They are a chance for us to talk and share our views. Because of rules, you cannot just dominate anyone. There's less chance to me for hocus pocus with this stuff because you can't carry something into a booth or influence somebody or get a whole bus full of people and carry them down to a thing and throw them in there because they can be influenced once they get there. Yes! We just need a bunch of crooked politicians to stop the hocus pocus in all this and maybe caucuses are a way to do that. Let's hope we can get rid of some of them in this next election, maybe in Iowa. Trump is ahead in the polls in Iowa. 
but DeSantis and Haley are in second and third place. Not sure which one is in second and third place right now, but they're neck and neck at this point. DeSantis has a huge ground game in Iowa, and he has been there for a while. It could be interesting to see what happens there if he and Haley were to upset there in Iowa. It could be one or the other. But DeSantis has the better ground game. He has done a 99-county tour of Iowa, the entire state. Trump has been only doing big rallies in big areas, and we will see if that second choice turns out to be big here. In any case, we will all caucus down for some action on MLK's birthday this year. Next, I am super proud of France. That's right, you heard me. I am beaming about what the French did to stand up to hate mongers who hate Jewish people. In this next segment, I call Stand on Your Will or Relent and Silently Kill, a new segment. We will talk about anti-Semitism in France and what the leadership there did to react to it. I am so proud of the French. I will say it again. When there are more than 180,000 people marching in France against anti-Semitism, I could not be more proud. And that's what happened in France. 182,000 plus marched against anti-Semitism across France over the last couple of weeks. Paris police said over 105,000 marched in Paris alone. Almost the entire government, by the way, from the left to the moderates to the right. The Prime Minister Elizabeth Bourne was out there. Representatives of several parties were out there, conservatives, centrists, and members of President Emmanuel Macron's party, as well as far-right leader Marine Le Pen attended the march in the capital area. There was very tight security. President Macron did not attend, but expressed his support for the protest and called on citizens to rise up against the unbearable resurgence of unbridled anti-Semitism. That's his quote. I support him not being there because of the danger involved. Yet, he was there with his government, his words and his support. France has the largest Jewish population in Europe. So I understand why they wanted to make this big show of support for the Jewish population, especially when French authorities have said more than a thousand acts against Jews around the country have been carried out since this conflict in Israel began. Family members of the 40 French citizens killed in the initial Hamas attack. Yes, you heard me right. It wasn't just Jews. The Hamas killed French people as well and others around the world. Family of those missing or held hostage also took part in the march. Tomer Sisley, an Israeli and French actor, said this show of solidarity proves that the majority of French citizens are against hate. They're against any religious and ethnic group being punished. He said, quote, we're not Jews, we're not Muslims, we're not Christians. We are French and we are here to show that we're all together. More recently, we had a grand show of support here in the United States, which I'm also very proud of. After so many terrible attacks have happened since this Israeli war, some estimates have put the number at more than 300,000 people on the mall in Washington. The march is believed to be the largest pro-Israeli gathering in the U.S. since the start of this war. Finally, we have spoken out. All these crazy anti-Semite people We have finally said something against them. This crazy harassment marches at colleges, universities, and more cities around the U.S., in my opinion, are awful. I do not believe most of these marches were made by people of true conscience. After interviews I've seen on CNN and Fox, 
They're mostly younger people and don't even know what is going on there. They don't know why they're there. They don't answer the questions appropriately to know why they are there. No. They're simply there because of what I was saying in previous segment, social media, the biggest danger to our country. They're crazy and insane messages on there being pumped out by smart left-wing radicals or by the terrorists themselves. I feel frankly very sorry for the Palestinian people too. But Israel has the right to defend themselves. Two million people have been standing by and letting terrorists rule them for 20 years now. Yes. Remember, they voted Hamas to power. They let Hamas keep power. They need an uprising against Hamas. Yes! Remember, Hamas is still holding more than 200 hostages after all the murderous rampage they went on. And they've made no bones about keeping them. Ah. Remember, Hamas made videos of themselves laughing, murdering, maiming, raping Jewish people and people from other countries. And we have supposedly smart people here in the U.S. at our greatest universities coming to their side. No! I am not so certain that they're really that smart. Remember, there have been many serial killers who were considered intelligent as well. If you can be so easily indoctrinated by social media, you're not as smart as you think you are. I do not support people who are hurting innocent Jewish people, and frankly, Hamas started it. And they have nothing to do with what is going on there. The Jewish people here who are being punished, who are being harassed, who are being pushed. No! I will go further and say that no one should be wiped from the earth, no race or people. It is archaic to think such a thing. We must speak out against it. Yes! I am very proud of the French, I will say it again. They were the first to ban anti-Semitic protests. They were the first to try and stop anti-Semitic violence in their cities and campuses. I am proud of them even before I'm proud of Harvard, George Washington University, Penn, Columbia, Cal, Stanford, and Cornell, amongst many others. I mean, 30 Harvard groups called the slaughter of the people on film justified. If you're not sick from that, I don't know what makes you sick. These students, all of them, should be kicked off campus, period. They should never be allowed onto any other university in this country. Yes! What is the difference between these people and Nazis? That's what Nazis thought. They laughed and joked at people being murdered and killed and torn apart. Some of their faculty members spoke out against it, but their administration did not like they should have. <gasps> But congratulations to Tulane University for taking a stronger stand against anti-Semitism by arresting people, by using videos to go after people. But Jonathan Greenblatt of the Anti-Defamation League says this of the universities and how horribly they responded to anti-Semitism. Quote, the universities generally are failing the test. I would give the vast majority of university administrators an F in this country. <gasps> Overall, the French have done it better in trying to stop it. There may have been more events there against Jews, but they have been more honest in admitting what's going on. They have been stronger in responding to it. In any case, they did try to get ahead of it right away. I credit President Emmanuel Macron. Yes. President Macron condemned the, quote, unbearable resurgence of unbridled anti-Semitism in the country. A France where our Jewish citizens are afraid is not France. A France where French people are afraid because of their religion or their origin is not France, he wrote in a letter. Perhaps if our left-wing leaders would come out and condemn acts like this, yes! like they have done in France, we could get ahead of these crazy protests here. And frankly, if we would all join together and condemn them, if we could all join together and push back on these crazy people, the protests would stop. Next, I want to honor a president 
on his 60th anniversary of his death, 60 years ago this week, November 22nd, 1963. But I also want to look into his murder in a new segment we call, How Did We Get Here? That's coming up next. This is a special holiday edition of our show today. It is a little longer than usual because I want to pay tribute to the holiday season as well as our 35th president, who I am dedicating the show to his memory today. There are many theories behind what happened to him since this is the 60th anniversary of his death and I am somewhat of an expert on his presidency and assassination, I want to look at the events and evidence surrounding it. In a new segment I call, How Did We Get Here? We will discuss the presidency and murder of John Fitzgerald Kennedy. First, was he murdered? Yes, this is the only easy part of this whole thing. He was shot twice, in the neck and then in the head. The questions stop there. The first shot I am fairly certain came from the back and up high. The second shot, though, I am almost certain came from somewhere else, perhaps in front. I am almost certain, after watching so many videos, including the Sapruder film, several BBC documentaries, Discovery Channel docs, History Channel documentaries, and an important Geraldo show from the 1970s where they released the Sapruder film to the American public for the very first time. I have also read several books that the story that we have been told is false. I have read several books on the assassination that include some that influenced me and others that didn't really influence me. I have read the CIA, Vietnam, and the plot to assassinate JFK by L. Fretcher Prouty. President Kennedy has been shot by Museum. A Texan looks at Lyndon by J. Evitz Haley. The Kennedy assassination tapes by Max Holland. JFK from Parkland to Bethesda by Vincent Palomera. And The Day Kennedy Died from Life magazine. All different perspectives, all interesting. Oh! I read other books too, pamphlets, articles, and pieces of evidence other than these. But the movie JFK by Oliver Stone is what set me on the path to investigate this murder. I realized parts of it are from his mind, but as I began my own investigation, I began to realize that the Warren Commission report, which I will admit I have not fully read, but it's super long, but I have read a good chunk of it. I've also read the Tower Commission report as well. 
both have flaws. Yes! I've also looked into large parts of the report by the House Committee on Assassinations from the late 1970s. I believe they were closer to the truth than any other investigation into this incident by the federal government. Some background on JFK. He rose to power through one of the wealthiest families in American history. Born in 1917, his father made most of his money, though illegally. <laughs> they were Irish Catholic, shunned by most of American society until they became very rich and very powerful. Before the war, his father for a brief time had taken a liking to Hitler, which of course did not go over well here. No. However, after the war, after Japan bombed Pearl Harbor, he started to push his sons to join the war and John F. Kennedy joined the war effort and became a World War II hero. In a well-documented battle of World War II, he was the commander of the patrol torpedo boat 109 when it was rammed and sunk by the Japanese. There was danger of all on board perishing, but through the brave actions of JFK, he saved his crew. Afterward, though, he would suffer back pain from this heroic action for the remainder of his life. He went into politics after the war. He was elected to Congress and then almost nominated as vice president for the Democrats. While in Congress, he went after the very mafia that his father had been a part of. He put the mafia in lockstep surveillance, called them before Congress to testify on their wrongdoings. And it was the beginning of the very end for many powerful mafia figures as they existed then across the country. Mm. Every single mafia leader, in fact, in power at that point would eventually be brought down, especially after he was selected president and he made his brother the attorney general. Some scoffed at this because they thought, well, you're just making your family member a part of the cabinet. But there was a reason why he did this. He wanted to go after the mafia and bring down the power of that organization. Yes! The election was close between himself and Richard Nixon to begin with. It came down to a few thousand votes, mostly in Chicago, where some dead people, as it turned out, voted. But the mafia, as we found out later, probably helped him win there through his father. But they expected to be paid back. And oh, they were. Just not in the way they wanted. The Kennedy brothers went after them while in office, doubling down on their efforts to destroy the mob as it existed then. The mob had risen to power because during World War II, we used the mob to help win World War II. And it would take a whole show to explain this, but you can dig into it for yourself if you're interested. In any case, by the time Kennedy was president, there were specifically several big mob bosses in particular that he wanted to go after. Sam Giancana, perhaps the big guy, the guy in charge of all the mob, the godfather, the real godfather. Yes. Santo Traficante in Tampa, who had ties to the New York Lachese family in the New York Mafia. Carlos Marcello in New Orleans Ooh. and Johnny Rosselli in Las Vegas. <gasps> Some he had deported. Others were put in lockstep surveillance. Others arrested. Others just plain harassed by being watched all the time. Their homes being watched. Their businesses being watched. Mm. The Mafia did not like this devil cross at all, or at least what they saw as a devil cross. <gasps> Kennedy's father had called in a favor that the brothers had never planned to live up to. Uh. And perhaps maybe never even knew about. I don't think the Kennedy brothers ever knew their father got the mafia to help them win the presidency. And I will make this point. When you're trying to get to the truth behind a school's choice for why something is in a budget request uh. or why a military contractor is awarded something at a military base, you follow the money. There are murders and then there are assassinations and then there are witnesses. 
And in this case, we had all three. We had murder, we had assassination, we had witnesses. And many of the witnesses to the Kennedy assassination died mysteriously within a year and a half after his death. So many, I can't name them all here. In fact, there are so many strange things that happened around this assassination from Oswald's weird trip to the embassy in Mexico to a woman who was found on a road who <laughs> predicted Kennedy would die just days before his assassination, and then other attempts at his life in other cities, including Tampa and Chicago before Dallas. Kennedy had been harassing the mob in this country four years before his death. Yes. The book I would encourage you to read although it is very long, is called Ultimate Sacrifice by Lamar Waldron and Tom Hartman. This is the book that influenced me the most. I read it twice. <sighs> it is the best evidentiary book that the mafia killed JFK over anything else I have read or looked at. They did several years of research on this book. <gasps> I am almost certain they are right about the points they make as the research is off the charts fantastic. Yes. Here are my points as to why I know the Oswald story is bogus. Either Oswald didn't kill JFK at all, or was just a patsy, helped kill JFK, but did not deliver the final kill shot, or perhaps was actually a secret government agent sent there to stop what they knew was a plot to kill Kennedy, but he failed to do so. Although this is the least likely, I don't know how you explain how Oswald had a secret file on him before the assassination. I don't know how you explain a secret file on him after the assassination that has never been opened. I don't know how you explain him going to Russia and then coming back without any fanfare, without any problems and bringing back a Russian wife. I don't know how you explain the fact that Oswald had secret clearance in the military and we don't know anything about these files or anything about what Oswald did. And that does not explain a lone gunman and a crazy nut theory. So Oswald wasn't who we thought he was. I would add this next. JFK's autopsy was released to the public, but it was fake. This is pretty much a known fact now, but the original photos were fakes. The explanation given was that the Kennedy family did not want the public to see him all shot up. I don't buy that. Rather, an embarrassed government did not want the public seeing that someone i.e. the mob, let shoot their beloved president. <gasps> Another interesting thing. Oswald's file and many documents surrounding this entire assassination are still hidden from us, despite repeated promises from different presidents that once they got elected, they were going to get these documents released. And a big promise from Trump, by the way, they never have been released. Trump it back on his promise. Biden said he was going to do it and went back on his promise. Let the deadlines pass. Oh. I am now not sure if we will ever see all of this in my lifetime. Uh. It is obvious that Jack Ruby killed Oswald to silence him. Another weird thing. <sighs> Ruby was a mob guy. He had begun his mob association selling guns to Fidel Castro. Johnny Rosselli, a serious mob boss, called him one of the boys. He also worked with another boss, Santo Traficante. Ruby said he would talk more if his trial was moved to Washington, D.C. after he shot Oswald. He begged for it. He said his life was in danger if he talked about it in Dallas. He did not think the Dallas police could protect him in jail. But alas, the trial was never moved. And then this was hidden from us until the last 20 years, that a secret plan was assembled in the fall of 1963 and put together by the Kennedys with their national security group. 
to assassinate Fidel Castro and attempt to invade Cuba. <gasps> there was a lot of tie-ins to the mafia with this plan, where the mafia apparently used the plan to get in so that they could assassinate Kennedy. September 26, 1963 was when the plan was submitted. A rogue group of Cubans, Castro himself or other underworld figures, may have gotten involved in working through this plan to kill the President of the United States. I don't know if all those groups are involved, all those people are involved, or if maybe all of them were involved, but I can tell you that some of them did integrate into the plan. Bobby Kennedy actually made an accusation immediately after the assassination. He was speaking to Haynes Johnson, who had been helping with a book on the Bay of Pigs invasion. Bobby called on the day of the assassination and said, one of your guys did it, referring to someone who had helped with the Bay of Pigs and was helping with the new upcoming invasion. Ah. Also, we have new evidence. One of the many problems with this whole assassination was a magic bullet that helped kill Kennedy. That is, the first shot that went through the neck of Kennedy supposedly also went through Governor John Conley. Now, how is this even physically possible? I mean, it doesn't even make sense, right? No. But Connolly was riding in the car with Kennedy when it happened. It caused seven wounds to both men. Yet on a stretcher at Parkland Hospital in Dallas was where this bullet was supposedly found in pristine condition. This frankly makes no sense that a bullet causing so many wounds could look not mashed up. It should have been mashed up. A recent book by a Secret Service agent who was there that day has finally come forward with testimony in his golden years to clear up the whole story on how the bullet got on the stretcher. This man, Paul Landis, now 88, who was close to the assassination in Dallas, said he took the bullet from the car Mr. Kennedy was shot in and then left it on the former president's stretcher at the hospital. This bullet was found in the car, which means it did not go through Kennedy and go into Connolly. Instead, it stuck in Kennedy. Instead, another bullet had to have struck Connolly. And therefore, there were more shooters than just Oswald. I can tell you for a fact that it was a separate bullet because as Kennedy is struck in the neck, Mr. Connolly is still holding his hat in his hand, which he could not have done if he had been struck by a bullet. It could also mean that Oswald may not have been responsible at all for any of the shots, who knows? It calls into question just how many bullets were actually fired in Daly Plaza to begin with. Mr. Landis's story goes that after the motorcade arrived at the hospital, he noticed a bullet lodged in the Kennedy's car where the president had been sitting in the seat. He picked it up, pocketed it, not wanting it to get lost in the scene or treasure hunters to find it. Soon after he was in the emergency room with President Kennedy, he said he placed it on the president's gurney so that the evidence would travel with the body because that's kind of what you did. Uh... There was nobody there to secure the scene and that was a big bother to me, Mr. Landis told me. Mm. This was all going so quickly, and I was afraid that this big piece of evidence was going to get taken away. And he said it was very important to him, and I didn't want it to disappear or get lost. Mr. Landis never came forward with this particular evidence, although he did tell a few people about it over the years. He hated reading about the assassination. He hated hearing the conspiracy theories, so he just ignored it. Even though he filed reports and statements in the immediate aftermath, the Warren Commission never interviewed him. He never submitted a single official report. The idea that the true facts of the case differ from the official version is a modern American original conspiracy theory. It is the case that makes me believe that our government is hiding something. These are just some of the facts and consequent issues that make it an unexplainable murder. 
The Warren Commission report, the result of a government inquiry into the killing, identified Lee Harvey Oswald as the sole gunman. It said he worked in the book depository and he was the only employee absent when they were counting employees right after the assassination. He had lived in Russia. He had a Russian wife and ballistics helped tie the gun they found in the sniper's nest in the book depository there to the bullets that killed Kennedy. However, the way they tied the gun to Oswald was mysterious. At first, they found no prints on it. Then suddenly they found a mysterious handprint that was Oswald's long after he was dead, (gasps) which they could have taken off of him in the morgue. But anyway, you get into a whole bunch of stuff at that point. Because Oswald was then shot and killed shortly after the assassination by Jack Ruby while in police custody, we will never know exactly what Oswald said or any of his testimony. All of the notes from the grilling he got in Dallas were destroyed or never taken at all. They do not exist. <gasps> the report also concluded that a single bullet traveled through Mr. Kennedy and hit Mr. Connolly and caused several injuries explains how one gunman carried out the attack. Since this is now called into question by the new evidence, the single bullet theory or magic bullet theory, which Arlen Specter, who eventually became a Republican senator from Pennsylvania, put forward, is now dead, if what Mr. Landis is saying is true. The commission partly relied on the fact that a bullet later had been found on the gurney. At the time, nobody knew where it had come from, but the committee ultimately concluded that the bullet had become dislodged as doctors raced to treat Mr. Conley. Without this evidence, what would the Warren Commission have come up with? So much evidence goes into all of this. I cannot cover it all in one podcast, but I can tell you that this is the greatest conspiracy theory of all time. It is the one I would point to as the greatest murder mystery in history. One final point on all that is hidden. If the Soviet Union, which I feel is unlikely, or the Cubans, which I feel could be more likely, had a hand in killing Kennedy, the American people would have been so angry they would have demanded war. It could have been the start of World War III. Isn't that enough reason to hide the facts? from the American people. Overt threats came from underworld figures before the assassination. Celebrations came from them afterward. Sam Giancana, the famed Chicago mob boss and frankly the godfather of the mafia in the U.S. in the 60s, Carlos Marcelo and Santo Traficante, the mob boss from Tampa, were described by witnesses as celebrating the assassination of JFK in sick display. These arguments over how many shots were fired in Daly Plaza made me want to go to Daly Plaza, see it for myself. I've been to the sixth floor museum there. I've been to the area where Kennedy was shot. I've been there several times. I've stood where he was shot. It is eerie. I've stood behind the fence on the grassy knoll. People have stood there and shot him and not have been noticed. There could have been fire from across the street. The crowd thought so at the time. Why did so many people rush up the grassy knoll to see what was there if nothing happened? Mob hits historically take place in big areas where there could be a triangulation of fire. The saddest part about this whole thing is that this assassination marks the point when people stopped trusting their government. 77% of Americans trusted the government to do the right thing in 1963. The same poll taken in 2023, only 16% of people trusted their government to do the right thing. Now tell me that that 
assassination didn't make a huge difference in the lives of Americans. I do not like all the things that Kennedy did as president, but I do like what he did for our country as far as handling the Soviet Union and handling the mob. But he was the youngest president ever. He had a young family and a country that he loved. He was handsome, he was rich, and he has a nephew running for president now. There are many who refer to his presidency as Camelot, likening it to the way King Arthur and his knights sat at the round table. So when he was killed in this way, in a way we cannot easily explain, our country lost its innocence. It coincided with the Supreme Court taking prayer out of public schools. It coincided with the divorce rate, crime rate, and anti-government fervor beginning to climb. His death led to the most controversial war in American history, one he had already decided not to take part in. Vietnam became Johnson's baby, and Johnson promptly put us in it upon the death of Kennedy. We became a sad country that day. Liberals began their distrust of conservatives because many thought some wealthy conservatives were behind the death of JFK and other conservatives helped hide it. Conservatives were angry over this because I think they saw themselves as being falsely accused and they thought Oswald was a communist, a leftist, a Marxist and wondered why in the heck would we get a left-wing agitator to do, <laughs> to do this? So why would right-wingers use him? This was just the start of a big rift that has widened through today. We had just survived McCarthyism that had started the rift and some healing had occurred with Kennedy's election. And it was all gone with the sound of a single bullet. I've been to his grave. There is an eternal flame that still burns there today. I was awestruck to be there in the quiet of Arlington National Cemetery where countless men had given their lives for the cause of liberty. Here was a man who had given his life in such a different way. His death did not end like so many others there with him. Where their lives were given to promote the cause of freedom, that freedom still lives on. The mystery and the cover-up surrounding the death of JFK haunts us. It hurts our national soul. It takes away from the cause of freedom that Kennedy fought for. Yes. It adds to the rift in our country that exists today. I believe JFK helped clean up crime in this country and helped destroy the mafia. It was the beginning of the end. And he helped avert World War III by the way he handled the Soviet Union. I believe that we must find the culprits of his murder for this nation to heal. We must let the truth out. We must, as a nation, find itself again by finding out the truth behind this terrible crime. We must get there, even if it is 60 years later. Yes! Every American alive in 1963 who remembers it will know where they were when they found out about the death of JFK. We must push our leaders to release the truth. Many amateur sleuths like myself have found a few answers, but there are others with the powers to get there further and faster. We must hold them accountable to do it. We must do it to honor the memory of JFK and hold anyone who might still be around responsible for what they did. After all, a president was murdered in front of all of us on camera. In the words of Joe Pesci from the movie JFK, the shooters may not even know who killed him. It's a riddle wrapped in a mystery, wrapped in an enigma. <gasps> But just like the Secret Service agent who recently came forward, someone knows something. Someone knows something more. There are documents with the truth on them in the National Archives. There are perhaps family members of people who are no longer here who know something. They just need the power to tell us all. Next, we finish off our show. Ah. We want to keep the animal rights folks happy and we want them to not have their feathers ruffled up every Thanksgiving by not pardoning some turkeys 
And some become famous, like chocolate and chip last year. At least they do not become dinner, as America will devour about 40 million turkeys this Thanksgiving. But this tradition of foul balls, or pardons, uh, goes back to, well, (laughs) we'll tell more of the story in a moment. In a brand new segment we call Birds of a Feather Stick Together. Stay with us. Again, for joining us today for this special edition of our show. Please let us know what you think by writing a note on our Facebook page. You can find us at Lefty Lucy Righty Tidy, of course. There's nothing more foul than the innocent suffering. So let's get some pardons done this Thanksgiving, or at least let's talk about them in our last feature we call Birds of a Feather Stick Together. We're going to talk turkey, that is, pardoning turkeys. Why does the President of the United States pardon turkeys each year on Thanksgiving? Is it PETA? Well, no. PETA, that is the People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, was founded in 1980 and did not really gain any power until the 90s. Public pardons of our fine-feathered friends go back to Reagan and beyond. Is it their other cuteness? Have you seen a turkey lately? Maybe for my kids who think every animal is cute, but uh, no, it's not their cuteness. Well, where did it start? Was it Ronald Reagan, Harry Truman, or George Bush? Although all of them are involved in this story in some way or another, this is not how the story begins. Was it politics? Yes, there is some politics involved in every story, but not in the beginning. The tradition goes back to one little tyke and his buddy. You can go all the way back to my second full podcast where I profiled Honest Abe Lincoln, our 16th president. This is where Thanksgiving starts, as he signed a bill making it a national holiday to give thanks on the fourth Thursday in November. But the story of pardoning the first turkey officially goes like this. President Lincoln was a loving person and really loved his kids. Poultry dealers had been sending birds to the White House for years before Lincoln for gifts. 
1863, in the heart of the worst war in American history, Lincoln was presented with a turkey from a dealer. Lincoln's son, Tad, did not want this apparently lovable creature cooked. So Abe Lincoln stepped in and pardoned him. Noah Brooks, a journalist, recorded this story about Lincoln in 1865, but this was just the beginning of the story. Let's go forward a little bit before we tell the whole thing. A Rhode Island poultry seller by the name of Horace Vose began sending turkeys to the White House in the 1870s. The White House turkey became an official thing from Vose until his death in 1913. In 1914, turkeys began coming in from everywhere. Some of the turkeys were dressed up and others had special messages for the president. Recently, politics and our recent problems with rewriting our recent history began rearing its ugly head on this fun and fine-feathered tradition. Harry Truman was the first president to receive a turkey from the Poultry and Egg Association. That is it. This is as far as the myth goes with Harry Truman. Harry Truman ate his turkeys. He did not pardon them. Now, there has been some kind of myth spread on the internet, which I just finished telling you, don't believe the things you read on the internet, that he was the first person to pardon turkeys, but he ate them. In fact, Truman said of the pair of turkeys he would get, quote unquote, they would come in handy for Christmas dinner. In 1963, President Kennedy said of the turkeys he was presented, let's keep him going. And there was a pardon, but not officially. And the press kind of used the word pardon, and there was a few smattering things said about it, but nothing was official, nothing big was made. Richard Nixon and Jimmy Carter did not kill their gift turkeys either. They gave them to the kids. They presented them to the Oxen Hill Children's Farm to live in a mini zoo. President Reagan also sent his turkeys to the farm, but he formalized the ceremony and made it a yearly thing, which was very smart politically. He made it into an opportunity for jokes and satire. President Reagan was the first president to officially use the word pardon in connection with the Thanksgiving turkey in 1987 in response to media queries about whether he might pardon Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North or any of the other figures involved in the Iran-Contra scandal. Reagan joked that if that year's turkey had not already been destined for a petting farm, I would have pardoned him. And the turkey got away. George Herbert Walker Bush, our president after President Reagan, in fact, was the one who began formally pardoning turkeys in 1989. He said, not this guy, quote unquote, when he was talking about the holiday turkey presented to him that year. Quote, he's been granted a presidential pardon as of right now, allowing him to live out his days on a farm not far from here. That tradition has remained through that time, through the next Bush, through Obama, and all the way to Biden. By this point, animal rights protesters had gained power and were yelling for the bird's life. But the tradition goes back to my favorite president, the start of it all, and his eight-year-old son, Tad. Tad was born just after the Lincolns had lost a three-year-old child. The year before this pardon occurred, the Lincolns had lost yet another child, 11-year-old Willie. Tad was the only child living in the White House because another child was in college. This boy was full of spirit. He was so full of life at this point that the Lincolns had experienced massive grief. The nation was experiencing tremendous grief and there was darkness and death all around. I think President Lincoln would have given this boy anything he wanted, frankly. And Tad was born with a cleft palate. He had a lisp. 
He had dental impairments that made it almost impossible for him to eat solid food. Tad was highly emotional and could get lost throughout the White House. He loved to play under his father's desk. Unlike his father and brother, he could not focus on academics. He didn't like to read. On one occasion, a politician leaving the White House told a companion he had, quote, just had an interview with the tyrant of the White House, then made it clear he was referring to Tad. The Lincolns spoiled him. He had been through really rough times as a child. Tad took it upon himself to raise money for the United States Sanitary Commission. The Civil War equivalent of the Red Cross was the Sanitary Commission. Now, I will tell you, even though this is a spoiled child, he began to think about others. And that just shows you the heart of Lincoln was in him. Yes. By charging White House guests a nickel to be introduced to his father, the president, in the White House. Lincoln tolerated his son's daily interruptions until he learned what the boy was up to and then quickly put an end to Tad's charity work. Then we come back to the pardon. It was late 1863 when the Lincolns received a live turkey for the family to feast on at Christmas. Tad was ever fond of animals, quickly adopting him as a pet, naming him Jack, and teaching him how to follow him around the White House grounds. On Christmas Eve, Lincoln told his son that the bird was no longer his pet. He said, quote, Jack was sent here to be killed and eaten for this very Christmas. He told Tad, who answered, I can't help it, Father. He's a good turkey, and I don't want him killed. The boy argued that the bird had his rights. And as always, the president gave in, writing a reprieve for the turkey on a card, making it the first official pardoning of a turkey and handing it to Tad. Five months later, the president and first lady went to see our American cousin at Ford's Theater. Too adult for 12-year-old Tad, he was taken by his tutor to see Aladdin and his wonderful lamp at a theater nearby. Just minutes into the children's show, a theater official burst in. He shouted that President Lincoln had been shot. Everyone was still to silence until it was broken by the cries of a young boy <laughs> wanting his father. They've killed him, Tad cried. They've killed him. He was taken back to the White House, but didn't see his father again until Lincoln's body was displayed in the East Room ceremony, attended by General Grant and new President Andrew Johnson. Pa is dead, Tad said. I can hardly believe that I shall never see him again. I am only Tad Lincoln now, little Tad, like other little boys. I am not a president's son. Well, I will try and be a good boy and will hope to go someday to Pa and Brother Willie in heaven. Mary Lincoln moved to Chicago with him, where boarding schools tried to help with his lack of learning. The two then traveled to Germany, where Tad attended a school in Frankfurt. On a trip back to the United States in 1871, he became severely ill, and he never recovered. He was just 18. Tad Lincoln, this little wild child of one of our most beloved presidents and a serious advocate for turkey rights, was buried in Springfield, Illinois, beside his father and two brothers. His father dearly loved him, and somehow I do too. And this story is the basis for why I am perfectly okay with pardoning a turkey or two. In fact, maybe 10. You never know what turkey might mean to a child. It has nothing to do with PETA or politics at this point for me but more to do with patience and paternal instincts. Lincoln sure knew what those were. So I want to thank you for joining us today. I want to thank you for being with us through this special Thanksgiving edition of the show. It has been a hobgobbler of an experience being with you. I hope you all have a wonderful Thanksgiving holiday. 
and next week will be family time. So we will have a shorter program than usual, as there will be more time for us to be with our families. So on our post-holiday podcast, we will feature a great American hero who traveled throughout the West, but had a mysterious, very mysterious death. And we will talk about the poor polling of our president and vice president. Is Kamala Harris a drag on the ticket, or is she really helping Biden with younger non-white voters? We will talk about that. And what is going to happen with the Democrats' choice for president? Mm. Could this get interesting? Please join us again next week. Zip, zip, zero. Please let us know what you think about our program. We are on Podbean, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Samsung Podcasts, Amazon Music Audible, Player FM, Podchaser, Boomplay. Please find us again on your favorite platform and let us know what you think. Are we a fine feather friend or are we foul? Let's vote. Please let us know by simply choosing one or the other and throw it on there. Or frankly, this is America. You can always harvest a ballot. Or as always, this is a democracy. You can just do as John Wayne did and choose not to vote pilgrim. Okay, well, that's enough for this game bird for today. I am Craig Allen, your host. You have been listening to Lefty Lucy, Righty Tidy, a Texan caught in the middle. Thank you again for joining us and listening to our show. Thanks again to Will J for his excellent announcing ability. Join us again next week for another entertaining look into the world of politics. 